Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Oh, and also on Facebook, not only do I have a page, but we have a group. And if you join the group, you seem to get the announcements faster, and I also have, like, special prizes and things over there. So it's better to join the group um, on Facebook. Same name, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm also on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. Um, comments, questions, anything I'm, I'm cool with. And I just want to thank you so much for tuning in and sharing with friends and family. This morning, I have an icon on. Um, she attended public schools in Washington, but she graduated from American University and a graduate school of journalism at Columbia University. She has been a faculty member in the MFA Creative Writing Programs at George Mason University, Virginia Commonwealth University, and the MA Program in Creative Writing at John Hopkins University and a writer-in-residence at the University of the District of Columbia and Prince George's Community College. Um, she has lectured and taught internationally at universities in Israel, Turkey, and Spain. Uh, her many awards include the Barnes & Noble's Writer for Writers Award presented by Poets and Writers, Distinguished Service Award from the Authors Guild, Maryland Author Award from the Association of Maryland Librarians, her articles and essays have been published in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Essence, and The Root. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yes, I could go on, but I'll be out of breath by that point, and then you'll be like, well, what's next? <laughs> this is Marita Golden. Good morning. Good morning, Joy. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much uh, for calling in and being flexible and everything. When I first um thought about talking with her, I was going to talk with her just exclusively about, like, Alzheimer's. You guys know I do a lot of shows on health issues and the importance of, um, you know, getting checkups and all these different things and just being knowledgeable about different health issues. And um, I thought it was great because she had written a book about Alzheimer's and edited a book dealing with Alzheimer's. So I was like, oh, this would be cool. But as I got more into Marita Golden's life, Wow, we could be here for like a couple of days, people. Uh, she has done so many things, and she continues to do so many things. Let's start at the beginning. You seem to have been very bold because you wrote a letter to the editor. Uh, can you talk about this letter to the editor you wrote when you were like 12 years old or something? <laughs> well, I was very fortunate in that I, I grew up in a household with parents who uh, consciously or unconsciously conspired to make me a writer. Uh, they talked to me like I was an adult. My bedtime stories were stories about Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth. And my mother uh, told me when I was about 12 that I was going to write a book one day. So they gave me a very strong sense of agency from a very young age. And um Actually, you know, I can't remember what the letter to the editor was about, but I was a voracious <laughs> reader, very precocious, and I did write a letter to the editor of the Washington Post when I was about 11 or 12, yeah. So I've been writing a long now, time. Yes, a long time. Now, when you were younger, did you have a chance to go to the public library? 
to read? And if so, oh my what gosh. was your favorite part? Um, that was my sanctuary. Um, there was a public library, the Mount Pleasant Library, about seven or eight blocks from our house. And after school, I'd put on my skates and skate over there. And that was that was really my sanctuary. I loved it. was like a cathedral or a church, and I loved walking up the the 15 or 16 or 20 marble steps to open the heavy wooden door to enter the the portal and enter this very quiet place full of books. So I I loved the library and um in in our house I had a little room in the attic that I had made my little private place where I mm. could read, think and and be. So I I always had the characteristics of a of a writer from a very young age and then fortunately all of that was supported and encouraged. Now as um you know we have the internet now and there's less brick and mortar bookstores. Do you think this is a bad thing? How do you think the internet has impacted children's reading and development? Well, I mean, I think the internet certainly has fractured our attention. There's no doubt about that in that it's shortened our attention. It's made us feel that, you know, we can get things instantly. We can get things, we can we can understand something in five minutes rather than an hour. But what I find when I talk to young people, uh, that they really, they really are interested in reading. And actually the Internet has been in many ways a focal point for young people who want to read, who want to write. There are all these sites where young people can go to chat about the books they're reading. There are sites where young people can go and write their books collectively or singly and learn how to publish them. When I was 12, 13, 14, there was nothing like that. So I think mm. like all technology, it's introduced opportunities and challenges. Now, you were growing up um, dealing with the issue of race and sexism. Do you think has that gotten better for women, writers in particular, uh, in, in the industry? Well, no. I mean, all the isms are still here, and we've got new isms. Um, so I think the industry, on the one hand, this is the industry looks nothing like it did when I was a child. It is completely the publishing is com- completely changed, and we actually live in a culture where people feel that they have an inalienable right to write. So that you have a situation where you have the mainstream publishers publish about two hundred thousand books a year. There's another million published either self-published or independently published. The problem is that Americans don't want to read. Um, if, if the reading level was as high as the publishing level, we'd be in a good place. But no, there's, there's still sexism, there's still racism in the industry, and it's persistent, and it just simply sort of takes new forms. I think people look and they see, oh, wow, there's so many black writers getting published, which is great, but if you look behind the scenes, you won't see that many black editors. You won't, for mm-hmm. example, Simon & Schuster just, I think it was last year, during the pandemic, became the first publisher ever to appoint a black person, and and it turned out to be a black woman, as the president of the company. So we now have a black woman who, for the first time in history, 
is the president of a publishing company, and she gets to decide who gets published. She gets to sign the checks, which is the most mm-hmm. important thing. But yes. we're still in the era of the first ever, and I will be so glad when we're not in that point anymore where we can take black achievements just for, for granted. So you have a, a lot of black writers, and in fact, the organization that I co-founded, uh, the Hurston Wright Foundation, has been a major player in creating more opportunities and community and support for black writers. But the but the issue is who really gets to decide who gets published. And still, right, right. that's not really us for the most part. Yeah, I mean, you were first president of the African American Writers Guild in Washington, D.C. Do you think these support groups are helpful um, and for young writers? How, how do they help young writers um, in the industry? Well, I know... Th- well, the Hurston Wright Foundation started initially with a, a small program to honor black college writers of fiction. And I, I started that out with money, my own $700. And then it became, it's now 30 years old. And we uh, present an annual summer writers workshop, which actually is starting this week. And in, and in that workshop, black writers can come and work in a space where their stories are understood. Um, the language, the sensibility of the stories they're telling is really, truly supported. And so there's this, this First and Right Foundation, Kabe Kanem, Kimbelio. There are all these organizations that are black leader organizations that have really helped to nurture this new generation of black writers who go on to um, have international success and readership. So they're very important. But the issue of the economics of literature, the power of literature, that's where we're still um, sort of marginalized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, do you consider yourself a feminist in your writing? Are you, uh, are you a black feminist? Can we put that label on you? Do you want that label on you? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And is that is that is that important? And you know, with the struggle, like black people, we always are trying to fight for black people. But then women, black women, have this other thing we're fighting for. And sometimes they come at they come come at odds with each other uh, in certain people's minds. Do you still see that? Um, I guess in the fight, well, are, I think are, that, are women I mean, still I battling that? Well, Mickey Kendall did a really good book called Hood Feminism, where she wrote mm-hmm. about she the connection. Yes. Yeah, the disconnect between white feminists sort of defining what feminism is for everybody in the world and leaving out the experience of so many women in the world, and especially black women. Um, And that's been a persistent part of bourgeois white feminism. But then African-American women have always had our own form of feminism, whether we called it that or not. Mhm, mhm. Let me ask you: Do you write with pen and paper, or are you on the computer? Um, that's a good question. I, if I'm writing nonfiction, I will often just start on the computer. If I'm writing fiction, I will generally write in longhand. Uh, there's a whole mind-hand um, connection. And studies have shown that the writing that is produced 
by longhand comes from a different part of the brain. It's it's more sensual, it's more poetic. And even when I edit, uh, after I've sort of typed it up or whatever, I will edit in longhand. It's just a simple, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very different process. So, and a lot of writers will, as I put on my Facebook page one day, I asked that question. And many writers still do write in longhand. They they may mm-hmm. not say it out loud, but they, they, they do. And for me, it's, <laughs> it's just a very important part of the process. It's it's just a very, very different act. Are you in the morning or evening writer? Uh, morning, morning. And when I am working on a project, I, I normally write about an hour. When I was much younger, I used to write for, you know, three, four hours a day within the schedule that I had set up. But now I write about an hour. I was having lunch with a friend the other day who's a writer, and he's uh, very busy. He's head of a major nonprofit. He he and his wife have two children, two young children. But he said he, he, no matter what, he writes 500 pages five days a week before he gets, before he goes to bed. He was late Mm -hmm. at night. But I'm a, um, I'm a morning person. I'll I'll get up mm-hmm. and I'll my my affirmations and my my mind stuff to get myself ready for the day, and then I will will start writing and write for about an hour and then go on because I've just found that the early part of the day is best for me. More I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm clearer I'm more creative and I'm I'm not exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that one of India Ari's songs was an inspiration for one of your books. Can you talk to us about that? Uh, yes, that's the book uh, Don't Play in the Sun, One Woman's Journey Through the Color Complex, which I wrote um, over a decade ago. And it's about the color complex. And this was around, I wrote it around the time that India Ari first sort of burst on the scene with her song video and when I saw the video I was so deeply impressed by her courage in just singing about basically she was singing about colorism and Mm -hmm. it was a subject that I had secretly sort of long long to write about but didn't know how and when I saw her video I suddenly knew it was time to figure out how to write about it. Mm-hmm. Your first book was a memoir, and if you could go back, what would you change, or would you not change anything about it? Uh, I wouldn't change anything about it. I think that uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, it's had a, a very, very interesting life it's impacted a lot of people and so i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything about that book now i was surprised to, to be writing a memoir at the age that i was 30 because um back at that time in 1980 
the memoir didn't have quite the status that it has now. Mm. Uh, I was one of I was part of a group of women writers who were beginning to write their their life stories in ways that made it literature, but in a way I didn't really have any models. So just like everything I write, I had to figure out how to write it. And um, I'm very proud of it. It's a a coming-of-age story, coming-of-age against the backdrop of the political activism and change of the 1960s and then going to live in Africa, in Nigeria, with my first husband. And it Mm -hmm. wrestles with the subject, who am I, where do we are we African? Are we African American? And so many. I was very pleased that many people found something that they could identify with or use in the story. Mm. I think we have a caller here. Hold on a second. I want to see if they have a question. You're calling from three zero zero four, the last four digits. Do you have a question this morning? Hello. I guess you just want to listen. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes people get shy once I pick up their line. Um, so we were going to talk about Alzheimer's. Uh, tell the audience a little bit about your book, The Wide Circumference of Love. Uh, it's the story of Diane Tate, a family court lawyer in Washington, D.C., who, as the novel opens, is it opens on the day that she's getting ready to take her husband, a successful architect who has been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's to live in a memory care unit. And so it's a story of their 35-year marriage. It's a story of how the marriage is transformed by his Alzheimer's and what it requires of them both, and mm-hmm. it's about family, it's about love, it's about loyalty, and um, so it's it's a novel that starts out being kind of about Alzheimer's, but in the final analysis, I like to think of it more of being more of as a love story, on love mm-hmm. on different levels. I think it was a love story, definitely. I mean, I've had hope throughout the whole book. I don't want to give too much away, and and it had it had love with you know I guess the parents, then it has the the children and their love stories, and and how there are different forms of love, you know, and that one is not bad, you know, or or there, there's not just this one path to love. So um, I definitely agree with you about love. Are you um, okay reading some of it today? Uh, okay, sure. Um, I'll read okay. the first. The I'll read a couple of paragraphs from the the first, the beginning of the book, which is okay. actually a section that took me a very long time to write. Because one of the challenges was to write a book about Alzheimer's. I really wanted to get into the mind as much as possible of someone with Alzheimer's, and I spent a lot mm-hmm. of time doing research. I talked with families. Um, I spent time in a memory care unit. I talked to people who care for people with Alzheimer's. And even though we don't know what is in the mind 
of all of a person with Alzheimer's, we do know some things. And uh, so I felt that it was really important to try to write from the interior of the mm-hmm. mind of Tate. So this is a section, this is on the morning of that day where he's going to be uh, taken to the memory care unit. And um, this is a point where he's been rambling through the house, which very often people with Alzheimer's will sort of wander and ramble through the night. Um, And he's standing in front of the door to the house uh, trying to open the door to get to a meeting that he he has that day. Uh, The words curl through his lips with a familiar bad taste. His fingers clutch the cool, round object filling his palm. He twists it and pulls, releasing the orb that he no longer understands is a doorknob. He kicks the stubborn thing looming before him, kicks it hard over and over, then turns from its unmoving gaze. He paces in circles and straight lines, frenetic and relentless movement. This feeling, dizzying now, pumps into his blood, unearths a fury of words he cannot marshal, words that are slimy, slippery, burn inside him like a house on fire. The tattered calendar in his mind reads March 2nd, 1978, that day, a story that he sees in a million little pieces. There's no beginning, middle, or end to that day. There's only what he would say if he remembered. He is late for the meeting. He imagines Mercer cursing in that slow-cured Virginia drawl. Where the hell you at, Slim? If I can get my black ass here on time, then I know you ain't making me wait. Their (laughs) proposal to design an office building in the U Street corridor, still boarded up on its knees, and destroyed in the days after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, is finally being considered. Today, Caldwell and Tate needs a break, a big one. He has to make this meeting. He has practiced what he will say. This is the project. He is ready to go. A pain tightens his temples. To soothe the invasion, he rubs his hands over and over as though washing them and paces the wooden floor in slippered feet. The words now a mumble. Fatigue paralyzes each attempt to move, and he slumps on the floor as the words dissolve into a creaky whisper. There is wetness on his cheeks. His mind is the devil. Tears. He no longer knows what they are. Mm. I um, the pacing, like you said, I I love the pacing because it was very gradual. It wasn't like one day he forgot everything. You know, it was like one day he forgot one thing, and then the next something else. And it was these starts and stops that were, you know, for me, I could see being frustrating if I somehow develop Alzheimer's. Um, I will say at, at, at 51, I do sometimes go into a room and forget why I went into the room. <laughs> so, um, but um, Yeah, well, that, the, the, all, that's not all, Alzheimer's is where you don't know what a room is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not going <laughs> yeah, and people, um, people assume, and I think, you know, I guess it's natural for people to assume that I must have had some experience with this, but 
I, I, I never, my husband doesn't have Alzheimer's. I've never cared for anybody with Alzheimer's. But, you know, as a, as a, as a novelist, uh, and as a writer, I have always tried to psychologically and spiritually and emotionally make myself available to tell any story. And a lot of times you don't know, sometimes you know why you're telling a story. And then other times you don't know exactly why this story chose you. But I think that once you make yourself available to tell hard stories, challenging stories, you will find yourself writing very interesting things. I'll put it that way. So um, you, you took how long to write this novel? Uh, four years. And what was the most interesting thing, or something like you like? Wow, I never knew that before. Well, I don't know that there was one thing, but it was a whole process—the whole process of discovering this this uh, this universe. And I started with a Google search. Uh, I didn't know how to start, so I Googled uh, social workers who work with families of those with Alzheimer's. And I found someone in my community, and she was great. And then she opened the whole world to me. She introduced me to the director of a of a memory care unit, which is a you know a facility. It's a you know home for people who have Alzheimer's. And the director there was very pleased that I was writing the book. And she said, "Oh, anything you need." And so from that point on, the ball started rolling. And I met families. I was able to spend time just watching people, being in their presence. And I think that the big, I think that there is a surprise. I will, you know, the, I think the biggest surprise in all the research and all the conversations was that in the face of a disease like this, dementia, Alzheimer's, families find ways to love their loved ones through it with enormous grace and loyalty. And mm-hmm. that was very uh, powerful, and it kept me from being depressed as I was doing the story because I talked with so many families who said, yes, this is terrible, I don't know my father anymore, but I simply live with him each day as he is. He's a new father. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot of philosophical, spiritual lessons that is, that I, I hadn't expected. But I think the, the main one probably would be that this disease, which we were terrified of because uh, of what it does to our brains, and we think that our mind is all we are, but we're, we're yeah. more than our mind. We are our hearts. And our soul, and so there is much that remains even after Alzheimer's has arrived. Why should African Americans be concerned about Alzheimer's? Well, because we're twice as likely to develop it. Um, the The fact that we're continuing victims of systemic racism in this country and that we have a legacy of lack of access to, to all the things that ensure good health uh, makes us very, very vulnerable 
to a disease like Alzheimer's, which develops slowly over time. And the fastest growing group of people in the country who are developing Alzheimer's are African-American women. So that all the illnesses we have, the disorders like high blood pressure, obesity, um, all of those things contribute to Alzheimer's because Alzheimer's is a slow diminution of the brain so that everything, you know, everything that we do uh, either strengthens our brain or weakens it. And because systemic racism is recognized now as a health risk, and mm-hmm. for black people it's like if you, if you would imagine that all black people in America had a sickle cell gene, but it was a not a sickle cell gene, it was a systemic racism gene in their bodies, and that rather than being dormant, it was active all the time mm-hmm. because it is constantly being um, activated by our environment. So that, comp, that, that stress factor, which is in our blood, complicates our health enormously. So that that's why if we gain weight, we gain weight faster. It's harder for us to lose weight. When we get high blood pressure, it's harder for us to bring our blood pressure down. So that we have to almost be gorillas in terms of protecting our health. What did you learn about families? You said um, they're learning to love the people uh, even regardless of their uh, Alzheimer's. But... um, In terms of, like, I know in the book you write about the marriage. What did you learn, um, some things, some tools that people like wives or husbands did to, to, I guess, overcome, cope with their their partner having Alzheimer's? Well, love is, is very complicated, and I found that it wasn't unusual for people with Alzheimer's, for example, who were living in a new setting. Mm-hmm. To, to go on with their lives, and they would have forgotten, say, that they were married. And so they would begin a relationship with someone in in the, in the facility and suddenly feel that this was their wife or this was their partner. And what mm-hmm. I discovered is that life goes on. Life has to go on. And people who are caring for people with Alzheimer's have to engage in self-care emotionally and physically. There was a big brouhaha, I guess it was last year or maybe two years ago, about the husband of B. Smith, um, who had been caring for her for many, many years. And he publicly, because he had a huge following on Facebook and he had sort of documented every aspect of his care for her and their life together. Um, and... Um, he publicly announced that he was involved with a with another woman. Yeah, I remember and that. And many people mm-hmm. were very critical of him, and I felt that he had the right for his self-care to move on, um, mm. that B. Smith was not the woman that he married. He was caring for her with all the love and compassion he could, but that he did have emotional needs that she could no longer meet. So yeah. um, I think that people move on 
the people's Alzheimer's move on. Now, you wrote uh, also, you helped edit the, the other book, um, Us Against Alzheimer's. How did that come about? Um, well, I, I was so impressed with uh, the work of an organization called Us Against Alzheimer's that I wanted to support them and I wanted to, to create a book that would honor, that would be a kind of fundraiser. So this is an anthology. And whenever you buy the anthology, you're supporting the work of Us Against Alzheimer's, which is an organization which 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 is dedicated to making sure that marginalized groups, you know, black women, Asians, are part of the clinical trials and part of the research. So um, it's an anthology of fiction and nonfiction, which people people are writing, mostly people who have an experience with Alzheimer's, about what they learned about Alzheimer's and what they learned about the people they were caring for um, through the experience. Mm. Now, who are, who do you look up to? Who are your favorite authors? Ah, uh, well, I like Alice Walker because she. Uh, I think what I learned from her is that you have to be courageous as a writer, that you don't have to be afraid to take on really hard subjects. Uh, I I admired Toni Morrison, of course, because she was so fearless in her ability to just speak speak truth, as she saw mm-hmm. it. Um, I love Zora, of course, because she captured in, in her work the the beauty of our culture and the beauty of us as a people. And at the same time, she could be very critical of us as a people. And I think that, in fact, I just found out yesterday she's got a new book coming out. I mean, Zorna, <laughs> she's been dead for all right, these she's not here. Every year they keep finding a new book. I think it's called You Don't Understand Us Negroes. It's a. I, I don't. It's not. I don't think it's a collection of. I think it's a collection. I'm not sure if it's a collection of essays she did, or what. But she's just her book. Their eyes are watching God, is is one of my two books that I reread every couple of years. Okay. And there's there's new writers like there's a wonderful writer Britt Bennett, who mm, okay. uh, recognized Kristen Wright Foundation. Uh, she wrote the book The Vanishing Half which is an amazing book about passing. Um, you know, and there are new voices out there, um, and Baldwin, of course. So Now, you are, have a new are. book. Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry. and I hope you have me back. Um, it's coming out in October. <laughs> it's called um, The Strong Black Woman, How a Miss Endangers the Physical and Mental Health of Black Women. And it's a it's a book that... Writes that in which I talk about the strong black woman complex as both something that um, we have created as a persona that does empower us in some ways, but that also endangers us because it does not promote self-care. It does not encourage black women to care for themselves. It does not encourage black women to um, prioritize themselves in any way. And this is a conversation that's being had in a lot of different places now on the internet, in magazines and journals. So it's written kind of in the format of my other 
nonfiction books where I write about my personal story, interview a lot of women, interview some professionals. So that will be out in October. Oh, I'd definitely love to have you back. Um, and in closing, let me just ask you, how do you self-care, Marita Golden? Well, I've been self-caring pretty much most of my adult life. My mother and father died of a stroke and a heart attack when they were 62 and 63. So mm-hmm. I was so shaken by their relatively early death that in my 20s I started exercising, watching my diet. Um, I've been a long-time meditator. I do yoga, cardio. I get the checkups regularly. And even with that, you know, I've had health challenges, but I check in. If, I, if, if, if I'm stressed out, I'll go to a therapist. So I'm not afraid to ask for help. But I, I started vigorously, a very vigorous, aggressive, health, mental and physical health regimen when I was pretty young, and it's pretty much protected me so that when when there are challenges, I can bounce back. Mm-hmm. So you had a foundation there, so that helped you yeah. um, in dealing yeah. with Yes, yes, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to have you back on. Well, we will email back and forth about a date where yeah. you can talk about your new book. I think it's definitely needed. As you say, we're walking around with the systemic gene, so to speak, that's, you know, already there uh, stressing us out about things. So I would definitely like to have you back on. And thank you so much for graciously doing today's interview. Um, I hope you well, have thank a good you, time. And <laughs> thank you. Well, um, I will talk to you soon then. Thanks, dear. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Marita Golden. I should say she's more than just an author. She's also an activist. Um, she's a teacher. Um, she's helping other writers in many ways. So you want to check out her website, maritagolden.com. She has a lot of programs. She has one about writing a memoir. She has, um, you know, are you ready to start to write? Um, so she can help you if you are on that path of trying to write a book. Check her out at maritagolden.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you love the show today, and I will talk to you soon. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov.